if you haven't noticed the board in back, we've got uh, a board where we put testimonies. And you might think, well, why do you do that? That seems kind of weird. Well, it's because there's great power in testimony. Uh, and there has been, you know, any number of instances of someone hearing a testimony of, of what God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit did for someone that, in fact, upon hearing it, they received the same healing, anointing, blessing, whatever. And so we believe the testimony is really important. And so Harry uh, came up today and uh, asked if she could share one, and uh, uh, I said yes. So I think this is one that's uh, important for a lot of us to hear because it's about um, responding when God asks you to do something. So Harry? Can you all hear me? You can? Most of you know that I've had uh, an autoimmune illness and chronic pain, low-level pain, for about a year and a half. It's not the end of the world. People have it a lot worse. But it's been some deep waters with me and God. And um, bottom line, about three or four weeks ago, I was here and I was in the back doing my little moving thing. And God said, go up to the front and dance, and I'm going to heal you. And I said, I don't think so. I was like, you know, I've done it before. I always feel weird, like people think it's me wanting to be seen or something. So I didn't. Every time I had been to church since then when the band played, I'd just bawl like somebody, like John had died or something. It was awful, and I had no reason. I just couldn't get through the service, you know? And so John and I were talking last night, and I was like, John, if God asks you to do something and you do it late, do you get credit? <laughs> and he said, absolutely, yes, the request stands. And this is why I wanted to tell you all this, because this is the gift that God gave me last night, and I hope somebody hears it as a gift for them. John said, Harry, you always worry about what the cost to you is going to be when God asks you to do something. Change your thoughts, girl. What is the cost to you if you don't do what God calls you? So today I danced. Yesterday my range of motion was this. Now I'm doing this. I'm going to show you something else too. I might get stuck because I get stuck in front of the dryer, but I don't think I will today. <laughs> I can go down like this and watch. I'm going to get up with no hands, no help. So. I guess she just wanted one final twirl uh, before she... <laughs> and when I was dancing up here, God said down the aisles and touch the people on the edges and I'm like seriously that's so weird and there are people here who don't know us and I'm like okay if you can't tell we really believe in being authentic here right you know whether it's you know, whether it's good stuff or bad stuff, that's important. And, and so I love it when 
people have something to share like that. And I uh, especially love it when Harry shares because um, she's always authentic, <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> but that was for better, so we're, it's all good. All right. So, I don't know, if it, some of you may know who Gordon McDonald is, um, but he's a pastor, he was a seminary president, and uh, he was scheduled to fly from Boston's Logan Airport to uh, Chicago. But when he came up and was ready to get on the plane, the boarding pass uh, attendant realized that um, he had scheduled himself to fly not out of Boston, but out of Manchester. And so he asked her, well, you know, could you fix this for me? And she said, sure, but it'll cost you $360. Well, he was pretty surprised, let's just say shocked, by this revelation. And, and so he starts in on the, well, I'm a, you know, I fly 100,000 miles on your airline annually. I give you guys a lot of business. Can't you just give me this one little courtesy? Um, but, you know, she said, my hands are tied. There's really nothing I can do come up with $360, I can help you. So, kind of a testy situation. I'm sure wherever he was going, it was important that he be there. Uh, and so, it, it sort of had reached this sort of decisive moment. And um, even though he realized that he was the one that had incorrectly booked himself, um, he kind of felt like he was being blown off by the whole thing, right? Victimized by a big company that, you know, kind of seems to put money ahead of everything else. And, um, and he, this is all from an article that he wrote about this. And, and, and in the article, he said that, you know, this ungodly part of, of him wanting, was really wanting to say something sarcastic, sort of like, well, so much for the friendly skies, you know, kind of thing. Um, and he wanted, he wanted to hurt the other person, right? Because he was hurt. And he was hoping, actually, that if he hurt her, she would be so hurt that she would call the CEO and tell him about the situation, and the CEO would, would also be hurt by this, right? That's just how unrealistically we think sometimes, right? But then all of a sudden, he remembers this advice that a friend of his had been given who was going through a really difficult situation in his church. And the, he had been talking to this friend, and this friend shared with him that uh, someone had come up to him in the midst of this uh, difficult situation and had said, somebody has to show a little dignity in this thing. It really should start with you. So McDonald swallows his pride and decides to apply this advice to the situation at hand. And so this is what he wrote about what happened next. I said to the boarding pass lady, before I pay you the $360, let me just say one more thing. Six weeks ago, I came here to take a flight to the West Coast and discovered that the airline had canceled the flight and hadn't told me. They said they were sorry, and I forgave them. Then two weeks later, on a flight to Europe, the airline lost my luggage for two days. They said they were really, really sorry, and again, I forgave them. Last week, on a third flight, they got me to my destination two hours late. Your people fell all over themselves saying how sorry they were about the delays. And you know what? I forgave them again. Now here I am, fourth time in six weeks, wanting to fly with you again. See how forgiving I am? 
But this morning, the problem is mine. I forgot that I scheduled myself out of the other airport. And I am really, really sorry about this terrible mistake. You guys have said sorry to me three times in the last six weeks, and each time I have forgiven you. Now, I would like to say sorry to you and ask you to forgive me and put me on that flight without charging me $360. You have three sorries, and now I'm asking you for one. Does that make any sense to you? The boarding pass lady kind of took her own time out and considered my idea and then said, it really does make sense to me. Let me see what I can do. She says she typed and typed and typed into her computer as if she were writing a novella and then looked up with a smile. We can do this, she said. Two minutes later, I was off to the gate with my boarding pass. That morning, dignity won. The airline forgave me. The skies were indeed friendly. I didn't have to pay the extra $360. And then he offered these closing, excuse me, these closing thoughts. This increasingly crowded, noisy world is generating more and more of these kinds of moments where no one is really doing something bad, just stupid. And he says, me in this case. But because our human dignity is eroded by these constant clashes, even our innocent, innocent mistakes point to the possibility for hateful exchanges and vengeful acts. You have to keep alert lest you get sucked into saying and doing things that you will regret an hour later. On that day in that situation, Gordon MacDonald exhibited the wisdom that James writes about in our passage today. So let's pray. Father, I just give you thanks for uh, this gospel, this uh, letter from James. And I pray now that uh, as I unpack this and, and we work our way through what exactly James is saying in this, that you would speak directly to the hearts and minds of, of those who are here to, to listen. Father, give them an open heart and an open mind. Just bless uh, these words and let them be your words. Give you thanks, and I ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So the passage we're looking at today is James uh, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. So not, not a long passage. Uh, so James 3, 13 through 18, we've got it up on the screen, or you can follow along if you have uh, a Bible or a device. Uh, please feel free to follow us. So starting with verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And so he kind of opens with this rhetorical question about and asks us, well, how can you show that you have wisdom? And when you, someone says they're wise, it's referring to someone that has moral insight and skill in deciding a practical issue of conduct, right? So um, if you have understanding, then that pictures you with the knowledge that, you know, kind of the knowledge of an expert. And we're supposed to show that we have the present of presence of wisdom by the good deeds that we do, practiced with humility. And only obedient deeds, not mere talk, is what proves the presence of wisdom, 
right? Solomon, everyone, you know, talked about how wise Solomon was, but if you remember the story, um, when the two women came to him with a dispute over whose child this was, right? And, you know, Solomon has this amazing wisdom that was God-given, and so in that moment, his response was, well, cut the baby in two and give each woman half. Well, he knew because of this wisdom that the mother of the child would not stand for that. And so she immediately steps forward and says, oh, no, give it, you know, give it to her. And that's, you know, so it's that wisdom in action is what we're talking about here. But it's wisdom in action in a sense of, with a sense of humility about it. And in, in when we talk about humility, we're not saying that you need to be a doormat for the desires of others. True humility um, is what controls and then in a sense overpowers the natural human tendency that we have to be arrogant and self-assertive. You kind of notice that? Really, I think that's so true in society today. Um, what's interesting is that the non-Christian Greeks of this time, when he's writing in first century, um, didn't believe that it was a virtue at all. In fact, they felt it was a vice. Um, it was Christianity that made meekness into a virtue. Um, meek, in Matthew 5.5, 5 is an adjective, and it's the, an adjective form of the noun that's translated here as humility. Jesus promised that the meek would inherit the earth. Jesus also mentioned that talked about himself as being meek. And this, both of these occurrences are in, in Matthew's Gospel. And when Jesus says that, he meant he was talking about a believer who relates to God with dependence on God and contentment in God, knowing that they're going to reap God's abundant blessings regardless of how the situation turns out. And so even when you or I are involved in a disagreement, We've got to demonstrate a gentleness and a kindness in, in our attitudes as we're going about this. And so you've got to banish this contentiousness and this mutual, you know, he said, she said, the accusational parts of it. The Bible calls on us as Christians to show the presence of spiritual wisdom in our lives with deeds of humility and goodness. All right, verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So if you've got bitter jealousy and, false, uh, and selfish ambition, basically what James is saying is you're following a path of false wisdom. Okay? Jealousy describes a determined desire to promote one's own opinion to the exclusion of the opinions of others. And then selfish ambition pictures a person who's trying to promote typically themselves or some other cause that they're involved in in some sort of an unethical manner. Uh, they're willing to use a d divisive means to promote some sort of a personal viewpoint. Um, and it's only uh, pre-New Testament occurrence, which happens to be in some of Aristotle's writing, um, the word refers to the selfish ambition uh, narrow partisan zeal of greedy politicians. 
This meaning makes excellent sense if you look at it in the context of what James is saying. Uh, someone who prides themselves on their own wisdom and understanding are displaying this jealous, bitter partisanship that's the antithesis of the meekness that's produced by true wisdom. And it was interesting, as I'm preparing for this, I got uh, the most recent issue of Charisma magazine uh, came this week. So I was sitting at the counter in our house looking through it one day at lunch, and there's a big article in there on uh, Mike Pence, our vice president. And uh, there, I guess there's a guy that's just written a book about him, and so this was an excerpt from the book. And I read through this, and it, was, it just fit with this message so perfectly that I wanted to share this with you. I'm just going to read this. Um, this was... Uh, he has, Mike was a very, very religious individual from the very beginning, and even while he was, he was raised Roman Catholic. And while he was in um, college, he still was debating whether or not to go into the priesthood and decided against doing that, but then worked in a, in a variety of jobs. He was a, an attorney. <coughs> and um, ultimately was president of a think tank for a while and then went to the chairman of the Republican Party in Indiana and just wanted to know, well, how, how can I, what do I need to do if I wanted to run for Congress someday? And the guy said, why don't you run for Congress now? Well, was not the answer he was expecting. So he runs for Congress. Um, well, actually, let me read this, because I think uh, this will says it a little bit better. So I just wanted to set it up with that. So he ran in 1998 to represent Indiana's 2nd District in the U.S. House of Representatives. While still working his job at the firm, Pence ran a campaign based on personability, integrity, and wholesomeness. He won the Republican primary and then went toe-to-toe -to -toe with incumbent Democrat Phil Sharp. Though he lost, it was the closest race in the district history. He was far from a loser in his fellow Republicans' eyes. So it came as no surprise to anyone when six months after his first campaign, Pence filed the necessary paperwork to make another run for Congress. This time, he quit his job at the law firm and committed to campaigning full-time. All right, so far, so good. But... Somewhere in the race, however, Pence lost his way. Putting aside his faith and wholesome image, ambition got the best of him, and he stopped seeking God's guidance and listening for his still small voice. Instead, Pence chose to listen to Washington insiders. They advised him to go negative and personally attack Sharp. The persona Pence had built during his first campaign went by the wayside. As a result, the race is remembered as one of the nastiest in Indiana history. He ended up losing to Sharp by 19 points. James warned that people who had envy and selfish ambition could boast about it and deny the truth. And I think that's exactly what happened. In fact, this was um, his life. Uh, he was really in a bad place. He, he writes for a long time after that. And ultimately, after a lot of soul searching, he actually went to Phil Sharp personally and apologized to him for what had happened. But he, he truly lost his soul, and it took him a long time to get it back. Um, 
Anyway, to boast about wisdom when one is displaying jealousy and selfish ambition is in effect to give a lie to the truth that wisdom has got to be associated with humility. All right, verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So we've got three adjectives here that sort of describe what this false wisdom is like. First of all, it doesn't come from heaven or from God. It's earthly. It belongs to this life here, right? Secondly, it's un false wisdom is unspiritual. It belongs to the natural world, not to the supernatural world. I and it comes from the mental and emotional ideas of who? Of fallen human beings, right? And unfortunately, I think sometimes, as, as that story with Mike Pence so clearly demonstrates, we fall victim to thinking that that's the best way to go and give in to it and then end up having to, to, to pay a price uh, as a result. And finally, this false wisdom is of the devil. And I as <laughs> wrote that, I thought, well, what better way to describe Washington insiders? <laughs> I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but Satan uses it to corrupt relationships, right? All right, verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So what? Every evil practice sort of comes out of this. Um, this disorder is sort of this description of, of anarchy and disturbance. And it, it affects private relationships between Christians and other Christians, and, and more importantly, perhaps, between Christians and non-Christians. Those very people that we're supposed to be the light to the world, right? And, and clearly, if we're you know, relying too much on this kind of wisdom, there's no way that's going to happen. And this idea of every evil practice pictures this kind of an evil that nothing good can ever come from. People who cater to selfish ambition never need or expect to develop any fruit which is godly or righteous or in any way helpful to someone else. And so when Christians just go ahead and do their own thing, rather than caring for one another, then a community of support can disintegrate. And this is part of what, part of the reason why James is writing this. Because he's got teachers that are teaching different things, and this is sort of, if you've read through the first part or you've been here for the first part of this series, we're t going through the entire book of James, and that's one reason why his comments about the effects of the tongue are, are so important. That's where they were aimed at, because he had, uh, in many cases, these teachers that were part of the congregation and um, were kind of following this sort of behavior. And so he's writing this as a corrective to them that it turns out to be a corrective to all of us. And so Paul's outlining this epidemic of selfish living, and he's telling us that we really ought to be looking out for the affairs of others, for the interests of others. And then he starts to reverse this, and he talks about what true wisdom really looks like. He says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So he's listing eight different traits or characteristics here of true wisdom. And the first is purity. 
people with true wisdom are pure that they've put aside other agendas, basically. They've put aside the self-seeking nature that we tend to always have, uh, this factionalism that tends to be a part of, of everything that we do. And if you can go after something with purity, then it gives that secure foundation for everything else that comes after it. And then he, then he outlines five traits that really show an attitude of true wisdom towards other people. Talks about peace loving, this demonstrating a desire to promote peace between whoever it is that is not getting along in whatever reason. Considerate refers to being reasonable in the, in the demands that it makes in other people. Submissive indicates a willingness to learn from others and to be open to reason. Full of mercy is revealed by offering compassion to those in distress. Full of good fruit is shown by actions and helpful deeds to others. And the final two traits describe the essential nature of true wisdom itself. It's impartial, which means it doesn't have any kind of a prejudicial or uh, it's without prejudice and it's unwavering in the commitments that it makes. And it's also sincere and genuine and open in its approach to others. This is the kind of uh, wisdom that Jesus showed in particular uh, in his dialogues with Pontius Pilate. There was a genuineness there that w was part of that, uh, that, that conversation. And then finally, verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So he's sort of concluding this section with a description of what are the effects of true wisdom. Well, it results in this harvest of righteousness, which is a conformity to God's will. It lets one experience peace and enjoy relationships that where people get along. You see, over the years, Christians in, in various churches have developed wide differences in their social practices. And if you've been to other churches, this is probably not news to you. Um, Christians differ in their preferences for English versions of the Bible. Right? Some regard the use of modern translations as sure signs of compromise and moral apostasy. It was interesting to me because um, I went to uh, Virginia Union University, a seminary, which is a predominantly African-American school. And what I didn't realize but found out during my time there was that uh, I wondered why the professors were always working so hard to get people to give up their King James Version. And so I, you know, I finally figured out that King James must have been you know, what is widely used in many African-American churches. Um, and so they were trying to open them up a little bit to see that these other, tr there are other translations that, you know, are much more clear than the King James, honestly, uh, because the, it's just a better translation. And so, uh, but we have that today. We have people that are on both sides of that issue. In Europe, the Christians there live in a culture which much more readily accepts the use of alcohol than um, by believers than many people in the American church. Some people find it very, very difficult to accept that. Um, another example is that American women rarely, if ever, feel compelled uh, to wear any kind of a head covering to a worship service. But in Europe, 
the Christians there really are expected that w women will wear some sort of a hat, even if it's only a scarf, or something over their head, a hat, or perhaps even a scarf. And so we could easily let that kind of thing bother us to, to the point of you know, getting angry about it or, or disagreeing in some kind of uh, you know, unchristian way. But each one of those circumstances demands a response of peace and some sort of a consideration to uh, prevent the strife and factionalism and petty quarreling that honestly goes on way too often in churches. I mean, I can think of a number of churches that, you know, end up splitting because no one can agree on what color the new carpeting should be. I mean, I'm not kidding. That stuff happens. And probably about stuff that's a lot less controversial than carpeting. So, what are we looking at here? If we were to sum all this up, I think what James is trying to say is this. Seek heavenly wisdom so you can avoid hellish behavior. <laughs> Seek heavenly wisdom to avoid hellish behavior. So, it begs the question, so what, what is it that distinguishes heavenly wisdom? And I think there's a few things we can pull out of our text today. The first is the presence of meekness, and you sort of see that in verse 13. Um, now, I said this earlier, meekness was considered weakness by the Greeks of this, this age. Um, it was not a virtue at all that was to be sought after. And in fact, uh, Epictetus was a philosopher, and he places meekness first on his list of moral faults. <laughs> moral faults, right? Um, but, as I said, it was Jesus who elevates it to this position of, as a primary Christian virtue. He refers to himself as meek in Matthew 11, verse 29. He pronounces a blessing on those who were meek in Matthew 5, 5. And so, Christian meekness has got to understand, or it has to involve a healthy understanding of how unworthy we really are before God. And there's a corresponding humility and, and lack of pride when we deal with other human beings as well. And it doesn't come from cowardice. It doesn't come from passivity. It comes from trusting God. And when we trust God, it allows us to be set free from anxiousness and this, this constant need of self-promotion that so many of us have. And as I said, one of the problems in the churches in which James was uh, writing to was that these teachers were attacking each other for what they were teaching or not teaching. And what he's trying to say is that meekness is the opposite of this kind of aggression. Moses is one of the chief examples of this uh, in the Old Testament. There's a story in Numbers where he is referred to as being meek or humble. Words are somewhat interchangeable when he was being wrongly attacked by a couple of other church leaders. And instead of retaliating, um, he just humbly said nothing and didn't even defend himself. And in the end, God steps in and defends him them himself. And that lack of a need for self-defense is James' example of a person that is full of wisdom, right? It's not measured by intelligence or by college degrees. That's not really how you measure wisdom. It's by the presence of meekness. So, 
The next time you're logged on to social media, and you see a post that you don't agree with. Is your great wisdom obvious to those who read your response because of the meekness that you have shown when you posted it? Or is your post driven by your need to be right, coupled with your need to show just how stupid the other person is? Uh-oh. As one uh, pastor I knew used to say, all right, you've done gone from preaching to meddling. <laughs> How about when you have an argument with your spouse? Oh, now, you're, now I'm really meddling. Oh, I'm getting a thumbs up. <laughs> Is meekness present in those times? When you're, help, when you're working with someone and they're, having, they're struggling to figure something out, do you, <coughs> excuse me, do you suggest a possible solution? Or do you just tell them that you know how to fix the problem? See, heavenly wisdom is first of all distinguished by the, oh, uh, conviction down here too? <laughs> <laughs> Heavenly wisdom is first of all distinguished by the presence of meekness. All right. Second, it's the absence of jealousy and selfish ambition. That comes from verses 14 and 15. And, and you might ask, well, you know, is ambition so harmful? Right? Isn't, it, isn't ambition a good thing to have? Well, in some cases it is. Uh, it just depends on to what extent you take it, right? We all possess uh, a, f a pretty selfish nature. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would agree to that. And because of that, we can get pretty tied up and almost saturated with a sense of jealousy and the selfish ambition to kind of come from that. I and really, jealousy is just misguided zeal that results in contentiousness. Zeal, it's, again, is not a bad thing, but if it's misguided, then it is. And in many cases, what jealousy is, it's simply anger at the accomplishments of others. So if we find fault with someone who's leading something, you've got to ask yourselves, okay, well, what is motivating me to feel strongly about why that person failed? Or worse yet, do you actually cheer for someone's failure? Are you happy when an opponent, you know, screws up? Because I think you then have to ask yourself, well, do, do I actually share that same weakness? Can you imagine yourself doing any better in that role? Or, are you just jealous of the fact that God has allowed this person to have more ability than you, to have greater success than you, at least in that particular situation? And I think if you answer positively to any one of those things, then you've got to be very careful how you express any criticism that comes from that. 
Selfish ambition is the desire just to live for yourself and really no one else. Because you're only in it for what you can get out of it. And so in our desperate attempts to persuade others to see our point of view, which clearly is the right point of view, we may lose our sense of reason and our conviction and end up becoming fanatical. And then the, next, the natural next step is, well, we just want to wipe out those who persistently oppose us or disagree with us. Right? How many, t how many of you here, and I'll admit to this too, how many of you have been driving down the road and when someone just cuts in front of you, don't you wish you had a rocket launcher in your car? <laughs> just boom, take them right out. That'll teach them. It just, it just leads to bitterness. It's like we want to win. We want to be right. We've got to have the last word regardless of what it's going to cost. That's what it means to be selfishly ambitious. We have confidence that our knowledge is the right knowledge, and so then we arrogantly lord it over everybody else. So let me ask you a question or two. You look like a group of Bible scholars. Do you ever recall a time when Jesus was jealous of another person? No. Okay. Do you ever recall a time when Jesus demonstrated a desire to live only for himself? Hmm. I didn't think so. See, this is one of those times when, you know, the what... The WWJD bracelets are really not in vogue any longer. They were something of a, a past era. But the sentiment doesn't go away. Do we really need a bracelet to remind us that we should behave the way Jesus would? Wisdom is demonstrated by the absence of jealousy and selfish ambition. And then finally, just to build on the point, heavenly wisdom is distinguished by the existence of a Jesus-like demeanor. And I think what's interesting about, and that comes from uh, verse 17, by the way, and what's interesting about that particular list is how many of those tenets that he writes about directly express behavior rather than just simple qualities to have, right? This is what life should look like to others when you are demonstrating wisdom. Right? Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So the next time you feel yourself kind of rising up to something, step back for a moment and kind of take stock of your behavior. What am I communicating here? What Lord am I serving? Right? Because there's only two choices. What Lord am I serving in this exchange that I'm having? On an ordinary winter day in 1961, an MIT meteorologist named Edward Lorenz, ran some routine experiments and found some unusual results. 
Lorenz discovered that seemingly tiny and insignificant changes in his data could produce huge differences in the final result. At first, Lorenz and other scientists in the field of chaos theory called this the sensitive dependence on initial data. Fortunately, later on, later on Lorenz used a simpler term. He referred to it as the butterfly effect. In 1972, Lorenz presented a scientific paper entitled Predictability, Does the Flap of a Butterfly's Wings in Brazil Set Off a Tornado in Texas? According to Lorenz's theory, the butterfly's wing flapping doesn't actually cause a tornado, but it can start a chain reaction leading to giant changes in worldwide weather patterns. In other words, even tiny, insignificant movements or actions can produce huge changes that affect millions of people. Now what's interesting is that the Bible often describes something that's very similar to the butterfly effect for the spiritual side of life. According to Jesus, the spiritual butterfly effect occurs when we do small things. Making a meal, visiting the sick, befriending the lonely, opening our home to a guest, praying with a friend. When we do something for those who are considered insignificant, because that makes a huge difference in God's eyes. But, also according to Jesus, there's a reverse butterfly effect. Consistently failing to display small acts of kindness provides for us a profound loss of opportunity in the spiritual realm. So my question to you today is, which way is the spiritual butterfly effect working in your life? And there's something to kind of ponder over the week ahead, trying to put our faith into action to make it practical. I'll ask you to do this. Consciously practice using heavenly wisdom in all, all of your interpersonal interactions this week. All of them. And if it's, if you're a journaler, then write about what happens. Write about how you feel about that. I think it would be an interesting experiment. Um, Chip, you want to come on up? because this is something that you have to consciously practice. It isn't something that comes naturally. You know, give, left to our own natural devices, we'll revert right back to sort of the, the nature that we are born with, which is generally um, less than pleasant when we're provoked. So employ that heavenly wisdom and just see if that doesn't make a difference in your life. I'm going to pray and sort of close our service here in a moment, but there's a third part of our service that um, we have. And in the past, I've referred to it sort of as experiencing God, that there, you know, we, we worship God at first, and then we uh, hear from God, and then we experience God. And I been thinking about that and I've kind of come to realize that's, that's really not good language. 
Because I think we're experiencing God all the time. What I think is probably more accurate is, is to say that in this third part of the service, we want to encounter God. And so, um, if, if you could get our lights, that would be wonderful. Um, so, I invite you to stick around. If encountering God is something you want, if, and in particular, this is if you need prayer for healing of some kind. Um, because just as Harry talked about at the beginning of the service, we believe that God can and still does heal, whether it's through some sort of a direct revelation as what he gave her, or if it is uh, the result of someone who prays for you. In fact, if you would like to uh, hear another testimony, Lainey has shared about a healing that she received uh, for a knee that was in pretty bad shape, I guess. Uh, got prayer for it at a conference, and uh, it's totally fine now. So this, God didn't stop healing just because the Bible was finished and no one was writing about it anymore. We still believe that happens and can happen right here and right now. So if you just need to pray with someone, whether it's for healing or just because of a situation you're going through, just encourage you to stay. But if you'd like to, if you need to leave, if you just would like to leave, if you want to just fellowship, all we ask is that you go out into the hallway or maybe into the room across the hall um, just so that it doesn't disturb uh, what's going on in here. Either way, perfectly fine with whatever you want to do. So I'm just going to pray a blessing over us now and then uh, we'll just continue on with whatever, whichever place you decide to be. So Father God, I just give you thanks for this word today. Lord, I thank you that um, your wisdom is readily available to us if we would only seek to practice it, to put aside the things that are not of you, and especially to put aside our own need to be right, to be affirmed, if we would just rely on that which comes directly from you in our status as sons and daughters of God. So Father, I just pray a blessing over all those who are here today. Give them opportunities in the week ahead to practice heavenly wisdom and let them bring testimonies back as to the difference that it made in their whatever situation that they applied it in. Give you thanks and praise, Father. Just ask your blessing on this week ahead of us. And we lift all of these things, this prayer to you. And we do so now in Jesus' name. Amen. Be blessed and have a wonderful week.